This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me this morning in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. We'll be looking this morning at verses 1 through 17. Ecclesiastes 8, 1 through 17. It's uh, page 556 in the Pew Bibles. Continuing a, a series of studies in the book of Ecclesiastes. Let's look at chapter 8. We'll begin our reading in verse 1. Hear the word of God. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, or who can tell him how it will be. No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place, and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him, but it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And I commend joy, for man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and to drink and to be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Let's pray. Lord God, we turn now to your holy word. And as we think your thoughts after you hear, we pray that your spirit would be our teacher. We pray, Father, that your word would minister to our hearts according to our need. Father, you know that need. 
We pray that you would sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Gordon MacDonald, the author of Restoring Your Spiritual Passion, tells a story, uh, probably apocryphal, but it does make the point, a story about a music composer who had a rebellious and perverse son. And this son had a habit after his parents had just gone up to go to bed, but before they had fallen asleep, to go into the family piano and begin to play a scale. And he would play the scale up until the last note, and he would leave off the last note. Da, 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 da. And then he would go to bed, knowing that his father, who heard him play his scale, was lying there in bed, writhing because he could not rest as long as the scale remained unresolved. And finally, in consternation, the father would go downstairs and hit the last note. Thump! And then he could go to sleep once again. Well, life is often like that unfinished scale. We long for resolution, but instead we often experience dissonance. We long for loose ends to be tied up neatly together. And yet often in life we find that things have ragged edges and the loose ends are never tied together. Now, the Bible tells us that there is a theological reason for this dissonance, for this lack of resolution, for the frustration that we often feel in life. We were just discussing this in the men's Bible study in Genesis chapter 3 when we met on Friday looking at a man and his work, because Genesis 3 speaks to this after Adam and Eve had sinned against God, and God places a curse on this earth, and particularly to Adam uh, because of his sin. Uh, The Lord says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, and you were dust, and to dust you shall return. The point was that what once had been relatively easy, it was work, but it was easy in the sense that there was a great reward for the effort expended, now became difficult. Now there was much less reward for the effort expended, and with that reward of a good crop came thorns and thistles, other complications. By the sweat of his brow, by toil, even drudgery, he would eke out a living from the the earth. Now, that's just talking about work, but it's true that that same difficulty applies to all of life. It applies to our work. It applies to our families. It applies to uh, friendships with others. Certainly in our marriages, we experience this, this frustration, this lack of resolution, this lack of bringing things to a good close. Well, certainly Ecclesiastes knows something of that frustration, that lack of resolution. In this Old Testament wisdom book, Kohelet, the name translated the preacher in the English Standard Version, describes for us here in chapter 8 some of the frustrations that he encounters in life. But he's not alone. 
These are frustrations that people have dealt with ever since, even before, uh, and certainly frustrations that we wrestle with and experience today in our lives. Uh, we'll look at those. We do want to look at those. But we also want to reflect in each case briefly on how Christ, through his redeeming work, does bring resolution does bring answers, does bring at least the promise of everything being tied up the way that we yearn for it to be resolved. And so let's look at some of these frustrations that he mentions here in chapter 8. First of all, the frustration of helplessness, particularly the frustration of helplessness before political power. Look at verses 1 through 9. He starts out by commending wisdom, who is like the wise, who knows the interpretation of a thing. A man's wisdom makes his face shine. The hardness of his face is changed. A person with wisdom actually, even as he describes it here, looks different. There's a hardness that is gone. There's more of an openness, more uh, of an approachability that wisdom gives. But then, as he often does, he commends wisdom and then looks at life. And sometimes it's faced with what at least seems to be a very different picture than what wisdom tells him it should be. Helplessness. In the face of political power particularly. Look at verses uh, 2 through 5. Keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Now, the Hebrew there is particularly difficult. The ESV has a footnote that uh, also renders it because of your oath to God. Either way, the king, is he rules because God has put him there, or we are, and we should be subservient to him, or we obey him because there's an oath of loyalty, an obligation there to the king. Either way, the meaning is the same. The king is the one who dictates what will be, and it's your place, Kohelet says, to obey, to keep the king's command. Now, it's almost as if he's speaking to a courtier here, a servant in the court of the king, some protocol here, or some wisdom in how to respond to an absolute monarch who has the power of life and death on the tip of his tongue. He is fair process. He is uh, the law. And so here's how you should respond. Verse 3, be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, or could also perhaps be rendered a bad idea. Don't come to the king and stand and defend a bad idea. Verse 4, For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, What are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. The wise in heart will know the proper time and the just way. So in the face of political power, uh, perhaps you've experienced this frustration in life, maybe directly. Uh, but quite possibly more indirectly, uh, the sense of futility, the sense that you have a vote, but what difference does it make? The sense of frustration sometimes with those who are in political power over us or frustration we feel when we are either the uh, objects of or hear about the abuse of that power that is entrusted to those who serve in government. So a sense of helplessness, particularly in the face of political power, but some other areas, helplessness in the face of the future. Look at verses 6 and 7. For there's a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him, for he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? 
Well, according to the radio yesterday, there's some psychic group out in California that if you call, they will give you the best psychic reading you've ever had, or it's free. Now, presumably, they're going to tell you how it's going to be, but uh, I would side here with Ecclesiastes uh, that there's no one who can tell you what is going to happen this afternoon, let alone next year. Uh, we don't know what holds the future, uh, what, what the future holds for us. We, that's why we have insurance, after all. There's risk, risk of loss, and so forth. And so there's a sense of helplessness as we uh, look at the future, not knowing and often not being able to control what events might come to us. Helplessness in the face of death. Look at verse 8. No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. Day of our own death, the day of the death of someone we love. Uh, another area where we are completely helpless. You and I do not have the power of life and death. Also in verse 8, helplessness in the face of world events. The second part of the verse, there is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. Well, there may be no discharge, but there is a reprieve. I should have mentioned that Jay Uten did get home on Monday. Uh, you may have gotten an email to that effect, but we're glad for that. But the fact is, as Kohelet mentions here, uh, we always have wars. When this war ends, there will be another one. Uh, there will be, uh, nor will wickedness, he says, deliver those who are given to it. Even those who turn to wicked ways to try to make life work find that uh, it ends ultimately in frustration. Helplessness in the face of cruelty. Verse 9, all this I observe while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. Now, it's ambiguous. The person with the power to his, to his hurt, the more likely power over another to that person's hurt. And it is, we, we have a sense of helplessness when we hear in the news, read in the paper, see online, uh, the kinds of acts of cruelty that one human being can inflict on another. It's staggering. And you think, what can I do? How, how can I make this any different? And as I said, frustrations that we feel and experience. But we also would be remiss if we didn't turn around and look at God's point of view on these things. So just briefly, from the scriptures as a whole, yes, we often experience this. But this is where we turn to our theology. This is where we turn to our Bible and say, yes, that's true. Yes, I feel that dissonance, that frustration. But the scriptures give an answer to it. God is not powerless. He is not helpless. You may be. I may be. But God is not helpless in the face of these things. God is the one who rules over kings. Proverbs tells us that the heart of the king is like a river in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God not only knows the future, he has decreed the future. God is not helpless in the face of your future. He has determined, he has decreed what your future will be. He's not helpless in the face of death. In fact, Christ has defeated, conquered death through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first fruits, Paul says, of those who sleep. The guarantee of our resurrection to everlasting life. All who die in Christ Jesus. The Lord's not helpless in the face of world events. He governs the world. He rules over world events. You say, what about evil things that happen? Yes, God rules over those things too. He uses those things. I would even say has decreed those things, yet not in such a way that he is the author of sin. 
It is a fallen world. People are sinners. We have rebelled against God. People choose to do evil acts, and yet even that is the purpose of God to accomplish His good purposes in the world. I refer you back to the biblical account of Joseph in the book of Genesis, where God used and indeed purposed his brother's sins against Joseph to accomplish the salvation of their own lives and the lives of countless others. And in the face of cruelty, God is not helpless. The scriptures tell us, God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. That's why you and I uh, are not to be vengeful people seeking revenge on those who've done us wrong. We show to them the grace of Christ and we leave vengeance and justice in the hands of God on a personal level. So helplessness uh, is, a, is a frustration that we feel on all different fronts in this life. There's a second one that he mentions here, and that's injustice. When people don't get what they deserve. Now we know that God says vengeance is mine. But it's frustrating when they don't get it now. We want, them to, we want to see it. We want to have the satisfaction of seeing that lightning bolt come down from heaven, right? And yet it doesn't happen. Well, the writer of Ecclesiastes wrestles with that. Verse 10. I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. He's frustrated. They, they, these wicked people go out in the city and they're praised. They're looked up to. They're spoken well of. Worse than that. Did you catch what he said? They used to go in and out of the holy place. See, it wasn't just the city. It wasn't just the places of commerce or interaction in the city square or at the mall or wherever it might have been. In the church. In the holy place. These people were at ease. These people were spoken well of. In the holy places, a pr- wickedness being approved by the church. Now, we know something of that in our own day, don't we? Uh, with professing churches of the Lord Jesus Christ, approving, condoning uh, what God himself says is wrong. He's frustrated with it back in his day, just as we are with ours. Uh, verse 11, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Now, that's directed at the civil authorities who are slow in bringing about justice for those who have broken the law. We know something of that today. But it's also, I think, somewhat indirectly pointed at God. What about it, Lord? Yeah. This is reminiscent of Psalm 73, which we looked at recently, where Asaph wrestles with the fact that the wicked seem to prosper. And that's a little bit of what's going on here. Their their justice is not coming. God, they seem to be doing okay. Well, Kohelet here answers his own frustration. The preacher comes up with his own medicine for this difficulty. Look at verse 12. Uh, He says, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him, but it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. That's Ecclesiastes' answer to the second half of Psalm 73. I entered into the sanctuary of God, and then I perceived the end of the wicked. Their feet are set on slippery places. You know, They're in a most precarious position because they will face the judgment of God, and in fact, those who know the Lord and serve Him, regardless of what afflictions they suffer in this life, are the ones who have the Lord as their treasure and will be with Him 
in glory. Uh, one commentator, Derek Kidner, says, uh, writing of these verses, and, and this whole sense of outrage at the wicked being spoken well of and doing well, he says, this is too much for Kohelet. He is stung into one of his rare declarations of his own faith, dropping the veil of secularism which he adopts for the sake of the discussion. Thomas says, too much. He just has to state what he knows to be true, that the wicked will get their just desserts in the end. Injustice certainly is a frustration that we experience and feel in this world. Everything from the most heinous crimes to, honestly, things that are on a much more trivial level that people do to us that are are just wrong. And that sense of injustice cries out against it. That's a frustration of life. But as Ecclesiastes itself answers, uh, God himself will right every wrong. God himself will see to it on that day that perfect justice or the fullness of grace for those who are in Christ is administered. Well, the third thing then, the third frustration that uh, we find here is that of a sense of futility in life, that of a sense of coming up short. Look at verses 14 and 15. He says, there is a vanity that takes place on earth. And remember the word vanity means uh, a puff of air, something meaningless uh, that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And I commend joy, for a man has no good thing under the sun, but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. One frustration here, a sense of futility, is inappropriate rewards. Righteousness does not seem to get the reward it deserves, while wickedness often seems to get rewards that it does not deserve. Similar to what we just talked about, the sense of injustice. But what he's getting at here is a sense of futility in doing what's good, in doing what's right, in in moral effort, whether in one's own life uh, or in the community or in the nation. You know, coming up short and saying, is it really worth the effort? Acts of righteousness don't seem to get what they want, what they deserve, whereas wickedness seems to get the recognition, the encouragement, the approbation that it does not deserve. And so a sense of inappropriate rewards leads also then to a sense of minimal expectation in life. Uh, Verse 14, I think, flows into verse 15 in this sense. Since moral effort does not seem to pay, the most we can do is simply to have joy for ourselves, to eat, drink, and be joyful in our toil all the days that God gives us. A, A very reduced level of anticipation, reduced expectations about life. Uh, maybe even somewhat bitter expectations about life. It's not going to matter. My efforts won't pay off. I'm just going to survive. I'm just going to get what I can out of each day. You know, and the world can do what it will. Not a biblical view. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ has given us the great commission. We are to make disciples of all nations. Yes, it can be difficult. Yes, it can be long. Yes, it may cost your blood. But... It is a task worth doing because Christ reigns, because Christ is ruling over this world. You know, Paul ends that great chapter on the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, with these words. After talking about the resurrection of Christ, after talking about that as the guarantee of our own one day at Christ's return, he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, 
always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. What about the missionary who goes to a country and for ten years labors and sees not one convert to Christ? Paul says, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. What about a neighbor you've witnessed to? Seen absolutely no change. Even maybe the relationship's gotten worse. They've rejected you, rejected the gospel. Your, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. What about your prayers for your children, training your children, dealing with them as small children, or as teenagers, or as young adults? Paul says, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You see, what we do in service to Christ, done in the name of Christ, Whether or not it has the outcome we want, whatever we've done in the name of Christ is never in vain. And so, Kohelet is wrong. It's not vanity. Our service in the cause of Christ, regardless of the outcome, is never in vain if it is done in the name of Christ and for the honor and glory of Christ. Futility is overcome. Death does not have the last word. Christ has has been raised And our labor is not in vain. Well, he concludes with verses 16 and 17, just as a kind of summary or conclusion to the chapter. When I applied my heart to know wisdom, to see the business that's done on earth. Verse 17, I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. To paraphrase, what he basically says is no matter how wise we are, no matter how hard we try, we'll never entirely figure out life this side of heaven. We won't. There will be things that happen and we say, Lord, I don't understand. And we may never understand this side of glory. We will never figure out life entirely. In this world, fallen as it is, we will always have the loose strings that are not tied, the frayed edges that are not sewed down, the questions that are not answered, the difficulties or conflicts that ultimately are never resolved because we live in a fallen world. But just because we can't figure it out exhaustively doesn't mean we can't know some things about life truly. We don't know the entire mind of God. But we do know what he has revealed to us in Scripture. And while we may not know the mind of God and the purposes of God exhaustively, we can know what we know revealed to us. We can know truly. God is not misleading us in the things that he tells us in Scripture. But this side of glory... Our experience of life is often like an incomplete, unresolved scale. We yearn for that last, concluding, resolving note. And sometimes we might actually hear it a little bit faintly in this life, where God is pleased to bring resolution, to tie up the loose ends. But the day is coming when Christ returns, when God sounds that last and final and glorious note, All the world will hear it. And all of us who are in Christ Jesus, in faith, will be glad. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you ultimately do tie up every loose string, that it will all be resolved. But Father, in the meantime, give us grace. Give us grace to trust you in those things that we do not know, that we do not understand. We may not know, Lord, but it is enough for us that you know. And Father, we look forward to that day when so much more will become clear, clear to us who love you and long for the coming of our Lord and clear to this world as to who you are and who we are in Christ. And we pray in his name.
Amen.